We've cut our time a little bit short, so I'll have to cover some ground on some of this a little bit quicker today, but I'm glad we did. We want to have all the aspects of body life on display, and it really pulls into focus what's going to happen in Acts 9 when we see a God that we can trust. We see a God whose promises will always come true. Let me ask you a question as we begin. Let's just think about something. I'm going to paint a scenario, a narrative, and you can dialogue with me about it a little bit. Let's imagine that President Donald Trump this week um, had a State of the Union address. And in that State of the Union address, he decided through many circumstances that he is going to unleash one particular man with, uh, we'll say, a military force with him to be able to go and capture... All those who are Christians, who name the name of Christ. And when this leader, we'll say, goes out with this military militia to capture Christians, he has been given in his hand a a edict of sorts that says, you have full capacity under my rule and reign to go and not only capture those people, but bring them back to Washington, D.C., and we're going to put them on trial. And every one of them that will not renounce Jesus is the Messiah, we will execute. Just let that sit for a second. Just let it sit. You would have heard that on Fox News, CNN, CBS, NBC. It would have went out everywhere. What would have been the initial response for us showing up to this room at Grace Emanuel Bible Church on Sunday morning knowing that a State of the Union had just been given and we are now going to be treated from society like animals to be caged, hunted, and executed if we will not renounce our faith. What does that do in your heart? What is the first thought that comes to mind, guys? Let's just be honest. Yeah. <laughs> Freaky. Yeah. 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 God's grace. Sobering thought, isn't it? Yeah. Think about that. Just just think and let that sit in. It would make us afraid, right? Our our our, our initial response would be fear. Mine would be. And wouldn't there be the threat of us wondering if there's that kind of of edict given, how will the gospel go on in America? Would you think that? Let's just be honest. Would you wonder if, if there is a State of the Union address where it's full ability to go and shut the mouth of every Christian and quiet their mouth, would you wonder how is the church going to go on? Would you? Honestly. But that, I mean, let, let's assume you have good theology. Let's just say what our initial human response is. Would we be fearful? Yes. We'd wonder. Hey, if one honest guy... <laughs> I'm just joking. It would hit us pretty hard, wouldn't it? It would make us think very carefully about what we believe about our God. We'd be thinking about our own soul to make sure we're right with Him. We'd be thinking about wondering if we have the convictions to stand. But I think what would most be on display and would most be in jeopardy is we would, in our sinful fear that would initially arise, we would begin to question our God's 
capacity on the throne. We'd begin to question how the gospel is going to go forth. You know how I know that? Because anytime there's even a potential president that's going to be put in place where we think we're going to lose our freedom of religion, all of Christianity gets phobia and goes crazy with fear at the prospect of us losing our freedom of speech. Right? I mean, everywhere you look, conservative Christians act like they don't have good theology. Well, in the book of Acts, chapter 9, verses 1 all the way to verse 31, we have a narrative, beloved. And that narrative really resembles that scenario I just brought up to you here today. And here's why that's important. In Acts 9, what do we have? We love this section. We have the conversion of Paul. That thrills our hearts. Wow, we're going to see the scales fall off. It's amazing. We're going to see a radical conversion. It's amazing. But what if I told you that if Luke, the writer here, was sitting here this morning in that seat right there, if I only preached the conversion of Paul from this narrative, he would be disappointed and he would probably come up to me after and say, you know, Darren, that was really encouraging what you said about Paul, but you missed the point of the narrative. Because God had me include that in Scripture, not just to show the conversion of Paul, but to show the character of God that no matter what threats, what opposition, how much hatred comes against the Gospel, God promises He will always prevail and He will always build His church and He wants us to be trusting Him no matter the hostility that we face. Paul is a pawn in one sense in this narrative that represents a threat to the church. And God's going to deal with that threat. And so when you come to this narrative, I want you to actually, I'm going to show you the beginning and the end of the narrative. And here's what's amazing. In the beginning of the narrative, you're going to read Luke say, there is a big problem. This guy named Paul, Saul. And just up front, Paul is just his Greek name. Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul, Saul the persecutor did not become Paul the humble. They're the same through the book of Acts. The biblical authors interchangeably use his name through the whole book. So he's Saul and Paul. Saul is Hebrew. Paul is Greek. So in this section here, though, I want you to notice verses 1 and 2. Look at chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Now, Saul, or Paul, look at this. Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Why does it say still? Because where was the last time we saw Paul? Standing there like a stoic military general holding some coats as he commissioned the people to murder Stephen. That's the last time we saw Paul. Standing there as a murderer, giving hearty approval, enjoying watching bold Stephen be executed. That's a lot. And he was running a mob then. So notice, chapter 9, verse 1. So Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, here it is, and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that, what's the purpose? Why did he want this letter? If he found any belonging to the way. By the way, I love that. I think we should use that language. Do you belong to the way? Yep, I belong to the way. How do you know? The way of following Jesus. There there was such a commitment level of the early Christians that the idea is there, those are the people that are committed to the path and are unwavering. If I find anybody committed to the path of Jesus and unwavering, notice, he does not discriminate. Both men, verse 2, middle of the verse, and women. Here's what he wants to do. He wants to bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now stop there for a moment. Notice really quickly that he went to the high priest. 
The high priest, if you remember, was a representative for the emperor on how to carry out law in the land. So he basically went and got a letter. And that letter basically said, from the high priest, permission of the emperor that runs all of the Greek empire, here is your permission to go find any man or woman that you can is a Christian. He's heading to Damascus, is going to be his first stop, a major hub. And if you find any there, here is your permission, license to kill. And it says there that he's just going to bind them. But remember, binding them and bringing them to Jerusalem would have meant bringing them to trial. And to go to Jerusalem trial, here's what you would have been on trial for under Deuteronomical law. Are you a blasphemer? Do you believe that Jesus, the Nazarene, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises? If the answer is yes, then we'll kill you like we killed Stephen. Now remember, Christianity is not yet illegal. So this is, you have clearly this guy Paul, who's the leader of the Jews, who's a Jew, Hebrew of Hebrews, who's, who's had the capacity to get with the high priest and go to the emperor and say, these guys are a threat, let's go take care of them. And so it's not holistic illegal to be a Christian, but now you've got a guy that's a murderer, that's angry, that hates Christians, and he's going to get an entourage of men and he's going hunting. That's how this narrative begins. A great threat to the church. Now read how the narrative ends. Go to verse 31. That's the beginning. (laughs) This is so interesting. Verse 31. The narrative ends. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. That's language for all of the... uh, all of the area of Jerusalem from Samaria north, Judea south, Jerusalem in the middle, over to the coast of Galilee. He's saying all the church. And notice church there, and he names these areas, it's actually in the singular. So he's saying all the true church made up of local churches that have been planted and scattered. He says all the true church in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, notice what it said, enjoyed peace. Wait a second. The narrative began on a ravenous, lunatic murderer was going to hunt down Christians. And the narrative ends saying, "Ah, the church is at peace. Beloved, whatever happens between verses 1 and 2 and verse 31 is the point of the narrative where God shows Himself to protect His church. It doesn't just mean then peace like, oh, we have no conflict, right? Because the narrative begins with Christians being hunted. In the middle of the narrative, you're going to see three murder attempts. And then the narrative ends with, ah, and the church was enjoying peace. What does it mean? Look at it closer. So throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, the church enjoyed peace. What kind of peace? Peace with the world? Of course not. It it qualifies or classifies the peace. It's a type of peace, beloved, from Philippians 4 that surpasses understanding. It's a peace that says no matter opposition, no matter the obstacles, no matter how much people hate us, no matter how many Christians they kill, no matter how many Pauls are spun out there to stop the church, God will keep His promises. We believe Him. He's trustworthy. He's true. He's promised to build His church. We don't have to fear. We have peace no matter the opposition. And notice, he describes what that piece looks like. Notice, the church was being built up. That is the idea. They're being fortified. They're studying. They're learning. They're gathering. And you think about the context is them being under the threat of permanent extinction. And they're being strengthened. By what? 
trusting God's promises. And notice, not only being strengthened that way, they're going on in the fear of the Lord. What does that mean, beloved? When I started here, I said, what, off, what comes to all of our hearts at the thought of a Paul coming after all of us? Fear. We have fear of man. This church is at a place that they trust God so robustly, they have more fear of the Lord, notice, than fear of man. They're more fearful of sinning than suffering. They'd rather suffer than compromise. This church, no matter the opposition, has seen their God be so faithful, so true, so wonderful. No matter what happens, they're just going to keep honoring Him. And then notice, they go around in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That is to say, everywhere they look, they see the Spirit's work on display, transforming lives, illuminating minds, empowering people to live holy lives. They see the Spirit's work. And then notice, the church continued to increase. That's numerically. That's language in the book of Acts where the church kept growing. So beloved, now back up. The narrative begins that the church is under threat of extinction. And the narrative ends with the church flourishing. Whatever happens in the middle of that narrative is the point for us today. And it's very simple. God is going to prove, no matter the threat that comes against His church, no matter the hostility and the opposition, no matter if Donald Trump gave a State of the Union next week, or in three years we get somebody we're all afraid of, some liberal in office that says there's no freedom to worship anymore. No matter what happens, the point of Acts 9 is that you leave here and say, I don't have to fear. My God is good. He is faithful. He's made promises. All I need to do is fear Him and walk with Him and He'll take care of the rest. And Acts 9 was meant to do that for all the churches all the days. And so with that in your mind, here's our outline. Ready? Here's your outline. Two snapshots to prove God loves His church and she will always prevail. Two snapshots to prove God loves His church and she will always prevail. Here's snapshot one. God neutralizes a major threat to His church. Notice the threat in verses 1 and 2, and then how God deals with them. Now Saul, let's read it again. Verse 1, Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, he got the letter, and now he's heading to this place called Damascus, which is far north of Jerusalem. And what's he doing there? He's going to find Christians to take them down. Then notice verse 3. We, we might even say, this is a, a but God section. <laughs> but God, as he was traveling... It happened that he was approaching Damascus. So envision this. Here's, here's bloodthirsty Paul on his way to get to the place where he's going to be able to satisfy his appetite for vengeance to exterminate Christians. And just before he gets to town, Jesus shows up. <laughs> I mean, the irony of it that would have encouraged the church for millennia and encourages us today is amazing. He's almost there, proud, arrogant, full of himself. You'll see in a moment he's got an entourage with him ready to take out Christians. And then look what happens. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, verse 3, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Literally the idea is lightning bolts came around him all at one time. Boom! It was so profound and so devastating. Here is the arrogant, self-righteous, proud, Man who wants to terminate Christians. And look at where he's at in verse 4. He's on the ground. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying from heaven. This is awesome. Saul, Saul. Jesus uses Hebrew name. Why are you persecuting me? Stop there, beloved. Do you realize what Jesus has said? Look closer at it. 
He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's the theological point of this narrative. Paul, how you treat my church is how you treat me. If you go after my people, I am jealous for them. You hurt my body, I'm coming for you. What an encouragement to just think about how personally Jesus takes it when people mistreat the saints of the Lord. Now Paul is about to get dealt with severely and and God may not deal this swiftly with everyone, right? Every time. But ultimately He always does. And notice this conversation here. And really, we're getting to the heart of the narrative. God is jealous to keep His church pure, and He's going to neutralize the threat here. And look at what Paul says. Verse 5. And he said, I would imagine it came like this. Who are you? Lord? (laughs) I mean, there was no confidence left in this proud, arrogant man at this moment. Now, when he says Lord, he's not assuming Jesus yet. I'm sure that his mind got flooded with Old Testament passages when God would intervene and come down, God the Father typically, come down and talk to the saints of old. Remember, he was a scholar in the Old Testament. An absolute, uh, had an ability to handle the Old Testament, he says in Philippians 3, with the best of the Jews ever. So he probably would have thought, is this you, God? And then look at what Jesus said. Yeah, it's me, but it's God the Son. I am Jesus. And notice Jesus takes it personal again. How you treat my church, Paul, is how you're treating me. Verse 5, middle of it. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. I love that, beloved. You know why I love that? And it's good for you to think about? Again, however people treat the church, if they show contempt for the church, if they hate the church, if they marginalize the church, just realize your Savior takes it personal. What a comfort to know we may have man against us, but Jesus is always on our team when we're in His church. So Jesus rebukes him. You're coming after my people, you're coming after me. And then Jesus gives him a command. Notice, verse 6. So get up and enter the city and be told what you must do. So, Jesus rebukes him, confronts him, stops him in his tracks, and then tells him, yeah, the city you were going to go persecute Christians, you go ahead into Damascus, but there's a whole different agenda that's about to take place. Now, notice verse 7. He wasn't alone. I love this. The men who traveled with him. Have you ever noticed that? How did We're about to see he's about to be turned blind. How did he get into the city? Well, he brought an entourage with him, probably of a military sort, to take out Christians. Notice, the men who traveled with him, verse 7, watch this, stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. You know what I was thinking about? I, I have to say, I don't know from the authority of Scripture, but just from my own thought, could you imagine the impact it would have had on that entourage that was with him? Think about the men that were with Paul. They would have heard the voice of Jesus rebuking their leader in front of them. He's in dusted ashes before them. He's about to be blinded by Jesus from heaven, and they're going to have to walk him into the city. They would have had to give an account for that. I bet you, when we get to heaven, we're going to meet some of those men. That's just my thought. How else would they have been able to reconcile that? What, are they going to go around and still keep rejecting Jesus when they've... I mean, they could, but man. So, notice verse 8. Saul, Paul, 
got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, look at this, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, here you have this military leader, no doubt, uh, not military leader, Paul leading probably this military entourage, going like a general to kill Christians out front. And now he's a blind, decrepit, fearful man being led in by his people into the city he was coming to execute Christians in. Now, if God is not putting an exclamation point on the fact that he's going to protect his church, I don't know what he is. Saul got up, verse 8. And though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. He was led by the hand, and they brought him in to the city of Damascus. Notice verse 9. He was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And you say, what was he doing? He was blind, he wasn't eating, he wasn't drinking. What in the world was he doing for three days? Well, look at the end of verse 11, just the last four words. For he is praying. Beloved, think about that for a moment. You have the proud, arrogant, hard-hearted, murderous Paul walking in, about to charge in and start taking out Christians. And now he finds himself broken, decrepit, blind, and for three days praying. What do you think he was praying? I was thinking he would have been no doubt praying about Stephen. I'm sure he would have been thinking about his hearty approval of the execution of Stephen. I'm sure he cried his eyes out until tears didn't come anymore, thinking about how much he knew the Old Testament Scriptures and he had rejected the one that had just rebuked him from heaven. I'm sure his sin, his burden, his grief was upon him. Beloved, this is a a picture of what God begins to do when He's softening a heart, preparing it for conversion. Think about that. We are so flippant and casual about repentance, about brokenness. Here is Paul for three days not eating, not drinking, just praying, no doubt crying out to God. I mean, I bet he must have said, I bet you he said, have mercy on me a thousand times to God. Lord, have mercy on me. Look at what I've done. I've executed so many of your people. I've lived for myself. I've rejected your truth. I've been so self-righteous and proud and all in the name of worshiping you when I've rejected you. And now you have me on my face looking at my sin with no ability to even care for myself. I haven't even eaten a meal. He was flattened. He tells his conversion story two more times in the book of Acts and gives more detail. We'll see it later. He loves to tell his testimony of God crushing him. Because then it shows the power of redemption when God saves him. Notice, in this midst of God neutralizing the threat, he finds a reluctant disciple. (laughs) Verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Different Ananias. Ananias died in Acts 5. This is a different one. Ananias and Sapphira, Ananias. And the Lord said, notice to him, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. (laughs) It's almost like a... It's almost like the, uh, the moment with Isaiah when the throne room's full and Isaiah 6 and Isaiah sees the glory of the Lord and he's blown away and he says, Here I am, Lord, send me. And the Lord says, Okay, I'm going to send you to a bunch of people. They're going to be stiff-necked and hard-hearted. And Isaiah's like, Oh, <laughs> different ministry than I expected. <laughs> well, this is kind of one of those moments. Ananias is like, Lord, I'm ready. And then the Lord's going to say, Great, I'd like you to go share the gospel with Hitler. <laughs> That's basically what he's about to say to him. Think about it. Apostle Paul was Hitler of their day. And just by way of implication, no one is beyond saving if Paul's saved. 
Nobody. Ananias is told, basically in our terminology, it's time for you to get up and I want you to go find Hitler. He's in a house over here and minister to him. I mean, not only would Ananias struggle with fear, but he probably had friends, as we'll see in a moment, that were, that were potentially executed or in prison at the hands of the man he's supposed to go share the love of Christ with. The Lord said to him, Ananias, get up and go to the street called Straight. So he gave him a location. And inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Verse 12, And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in to lay his hands on him so he might regain his sight. Ananias, I don't think this is pride here. I think all we're seeing in verse 13 is just a a weak faith of saying, Are you sure, Lord, you want me to really go minister to that guy? Notice, Ananias, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. Notice, word has already got out to the land that he is coming to treat Christians like caged animals and bring them back to Jerusalem to kill them. How much harm he did. Notice, to your saints at Jerusalem. Beloved, that's plural saints. That means it probably wasn't just Stephen that Paul was behind the execution of. Paul probably had a reputation by now of being behind many imprisonments, many floggings, and maybe more killings of Christians. And Ananias is just saying, God, are you sure you want me to go to that guy? I mean, there's lots of people in Damascus that I can minister to. And God's like, yep, I am. Notice what he says. Verse 14. Ananias said, He has the authority of the chief priest to bind those in your name. But the Lord said, Go. Now notice this. Here's why I want you to go, Ananias. Here's the reason. For he is a chosen instrument of mine. Could you imagine Ananias being like, Okay, of all the instruments of the world, Lord, you really want the greatest threat to Christianity in this new church's time? And God's like, Yep, that's how I'm going to show off redemption. It's amazing. Paul thought he was his own instrument. God said, no, I'm about to pick him up and show him whose instrument. And notice, he doesn't stop there, but he comforts Ananias and says, listen, he's made many men suffer, and he's also going to get to know that type of suffering. Notice, I want him to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the sons of Israel. That is to say, everybody, from the Jews to the Gentiles to kings, Paul will proclaim the name of Jesus. 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. And then you see Ananias, obedient and ready, and he goes. Verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and watch this, and after laying his hands on him, says, I find this amazing, Brother Saul. Now, wow. I want to be an Ananias when I grow up. I mean, just think about that. Saul's not yet a believer. He's about to be converted. He's broken on his face, destitute. And he calls him a brother because they're both Jews, but it's also a term of comfort. Here comes this man, this minister, in to minister to Saul, and you can tell he has a heart of forgiveness, a heart of compassion for him in his unbelief. And no doubt Ananias probably had people he knew that had been affected by him. You know what else I love about this? God could have accomplished all this on the road, couldn't he? God could have just said, Saul... I'm confronting you. You're killing people in my church. You're saved. You're done going to ministry. But no. 
He has all the unbelievers around him take him into town to make sure all those men have to feel the weight of it. And then he commissions a reluctant but faithful disciple to go carry the rest of the message to see him saved. Guys, don't you see the wonderful work of God that though he can use any means he wants, he uses instruments. What an encouragement that is for the church to think God would use me. And then look at this. Brother Saul, 17. The Lord Jesus declares it to him again, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me for what purpose? Why did God send me? He's telling Paul. So that one, you may regain your sight, which is going to be a metaphor for his conversion, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So you are going to come right now in this moment. This is your come to Jesus moment. 18. And immediately, as Ananias came, There fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and got up, and he was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Stop there. Beloved, I want you to look close there for a moment at what just happened to Paul, because it is a spiritual metaphor for all conversion. Notice what happens. He comes and he reminds him of Jesus. He reminds him of who Christ is. He tells him that Jesus has sent him to bring him the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, here's what we could come to conclude. Paul's faith became spiritual sight, both metaphorically and physically. The idea of of scales there is literally, the Greek word is like fish scales. So envision this. On Paul's eyes, God had put like big fish scales over his eyes. And when in that moment, when Ananias showed up, he had been three days weeping over his sin, it seems, broken and destitute. When Ananias came, it was probably Paul was like this, you answered my prayer. Yes, Lord, I love you. Yes, I want to live for you. I'm done with myself. Scales fall off. He sees he's born again. Beloved, I love that type of language for conversion because it's probably one of the more descriptive ways to think about conversion. Today, it seems like, don't, don't you feel like sometimes you talk to people about conversion? There's not a miracle in it. There's not a radical transformation. There's no scales falling off the eyes and the heart that was hard becoming soft. It's more like, well, I still got the scales on my eyes and I live for myself, but I've added Jesus. This right here is a picture of every true conversion where literally your unbelief, your wickedness, your rebellion is right in your face. You reach out to Jesus in faith and in that moment the Spirit comes into your heart, knocks the spiritual blinders of deception off your eyes and your heart leaps to worship Jesus. That's conversion. The Bible never speaks of conversion as anything but radical. You may say, well, I don't know the moment I was saved. I I didn't have an Ananias come in that moment. Yeah, but in some season of your life, you went from living for yourself and your glory to God's glory. And that is the only way you know you're saved. Here's the point, beloved. It's wonderful to think about Paul, but let's back up and think about our narrative. What did Paul represent? A threat. He was a threat to the church and the promise of God. And so God said, I am going to put an exclamation point for all of the church to know you can always trust me and I am going to deal with this man named Paul and I am going to show him what a danger it is to come against my church. You know what that lets us know, beloved? There's only two types of people in the world. Those that are a threat to the church because of their unbelief 
and suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, and those that are part of the church. You're not in neutrality if you're an unbeliever. You don't hang around and kind of passively, I kind of think Jesus is cool and he's hip, but I'm going to do my worldly thing. No. If that is you, you are a threat to the church, and Jesus views you as a threat to his church, and if you don't repent and deal with it, then he's going to deal with you. There's no neutrality in the Christian life. We don't have this casual Christianity where you sort of attach yourself to Jesus. True Christianity here is the church embracing the fullness of Jesus and seeing this is what he does to neutralize threats, and they want to make sure that they're with him. But beloved, here's what's awesome. And this just unfolds so sweetly, and I'll just even be reading some of it and making some comments. When God deals with a threat to the church, beloved, He doesn't always just deal with them and be done with it. Sometimes He does. Ananias and Sapphira did, didn't He? He dealt with them, judgment. But I think the tone of Scripture more often is, God not only neutralizes major threats, but He employs them. God now takes the angry persecutor and makes him a humble servant. Beloved, if you're a believer here today, God didn't just neutralize you. He's now employed you. And Paul represents for all the church to know what it looks like to be employed. And I want to finish the rest of the narrative that way. So here's your second snapshot. Snapshot one, God neutralizes the major threat to his church. Snapshot two, God makes the angry persecutor a humble servant. Now, look at verse 20. And immediately... Paul, the once persecutor, began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. What is Paul's message now? Jesus is the Messiah that I've been rejecting. Notice 21. All those hearing him continued to be amazed. Of course they were. Hitler's now evangelizing. Think about it. I'm serious. The self-righteous of the day would have been shocked saying, Wait, what, are you, what are you doing? You, you went to go kill the Christians. Now you're telling us they're right? This is awesome. I love the power of God. Think about saints all around Damascus. They'd have been saying, did you hear what God did? Yeah, I did. Did you hear what God did? He saved Paul. Now Paul is down at the temple evangelizing the very people he was coming to deliver the letter to. Wow. Notice 22. He kept increasing in strength. Confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus. No one could match the theology of Paul. And you know what I love about that, beloved? Think about this. You probably learned a lot of theology before you were saved. You probably learned a lot of truth in your biography before you came to Christ, right? So did Paul. And God took all that theology and put it into his saved heart and started employing it into the usefulness of ministry. God loves to take our biography and redeem it, beloved. Let's go on. Many days had elapsed. The Jews plotted together to do away with him. That's a shocker. All of a sudden, Paul's life's under threat. But the plot became known to Saul. Don't you love the providence of God? Verse 24. They were also watching the gates day and night so they might put him to death. 25. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. Beloved, think of the irony. He rode into town as a military-type general, we could say, to execute Christians. God saves him, and he leaves out the side of the wall in a basket on the run. (laughs) But he's born again. Bet you he wouldn't trade it. Notice, then he goes down to Jerusalem, 26. When he came to Jerusalem... He was trying to associate with the disciples. Again, imagine Hitler showing up saying he's a Christian. But they were all afraid of him, verse 26, not believing he was a disciple. Don't you 
love Barnabas? Look at 27. Guys, here's a leadership principle for you. Ready? Barnabas in 27. Last time we saw Barnabas, he's brand new saved, gives a bunch of money to the church and used for ministry. Now he's in ministry and there's a bunch of guys that are seeing Paul and kind of being fearful. Barnabas hears the testimony, grabs Paul by the arm and says, let's go, let's take you to the apostles. God's done a work in you. I believe the power of redemption could even save you, Paul. I love Barnabas. He's becoming more and more one of my favorite biblical characters. He acts. Notice, he grabs him by the arm, 27, brings him to the apostles, described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, how he had talked with him at Damascus, and how he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. 28, and he was with them. The apostles accepted him. Now he's one of them. Moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking about boldly in the name of the Lord. So now here's Paul. He was in Damascus. Now he's in Jerusalem. This guy has one thing on his mind. He is proselytizing for Jesus now. And notice, this is awesome, 29. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews. That's the Greek-speaking Jews. But they were attempting to put him to death. Man, what a first couple months since his conversion. Two attempted murders on his life. Think about that. God told him he'd suffer. Look at verse 30. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. And that's the next time we'll see Paul. Now, beloved, our time is gone, but back up and think with me. You're in the early church. You're in Jerusalem. You're at the local Java shop. (laughs) Whatever. And you're sitting down with a fellow brother and believer. And you guys are saying, man, hostility is increasing. The culture is hating Christianity more. Let's fast forward to 64 AD in the summer. Nero's going to unleash persecution on the church. And you're sitting in that coffee shop and you know that even being there as Christians is putting you in threat. And you look at each other and you start to fear and you start to tremble and you go, wait a second. Don't you remember what God did with Paul? Don't you remember what God did to neutralize that threat and then put him into commission? Don't you remember that in, in early in the book of Acts, Jesus said he's going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? No matter what happens, we don't have to fear. And the brothers look at each other and they say, isn't it great to have a robust trust in God? We don't have to fear what the culture is going to do to us, what man's going to do to us. We just need to be faithful. And you know what happens? They leave the Java shop in peace, and they go to their church, and now you're in verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea that saw the power of God was enjoying peace in the Lord, being built up, going on the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and they continue to increase. Beloved, don't you dare doubt God's promises. He can neutralize a Paul and employ him. He promises he's going to build his church, and you may think this is kind of ethereal because we don't have persecution and hostility, but a day's coming, friends. And I assure you, You better have a biblical understanding of God's promises to His church and you better be right in the heart of that church because when persecution comes, Satan's going to pick off the people on the fringe first. And you believe that God will always build His church. That's the point of this narrative. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this morning, this time. Thanks for this narrative. Thank You for the life of Paul after this. We can't wait to see the rest of his life. But today... Lord, we confess unbelief and sinful fear and we trust You that You will fulfill Your promises to Your church and hell itself cannot come against it. No matter what happens in our culture, we do not want to be like the professing Christians that go around wrangling in fear anytime there's some political shift or change. You're going to build Your church. We trust that. 
You always do and you always will, and we always want to believe you by faith. Help us be more like Ananias and Barnabas than we carded Thomases. Bless the rest of our morning. Amen.